social media responses to the posts I put up along with my podcast links come in three varieties. The first, and most welcome, are those which engage with what I'm saying by either disputing it, agreeing with it, or presenting me with things to read more about. Some of the books I've read in the last year came from suggested readings in the comments on my work. As for disputes, I can either learn something I don't know, or found out where I've gone wrong in my presentation such that I was misunderstood. The second variety of comments comes in the form of a character attack. I'm accused of profiteering or deliberately presenting nonsensical word salad. Of course, I've never profited one thin dime off any of this, and I don't see that, that situation changing in the near future, and I'm certainly trying to make sense whether I'm succeeding or not. The third variety of response is maximally worthless, are proud and decisive declarative statements about the subject matter with no argument or evidence provided. Thank you for the opinion, but the adults are talking now. Today's episode concerns a response of the first variety. I was recently given the suggestion to take a look at Bernardo Castrop's Small Theory of Everything, which presents an argument in favor of metaphysical idealism, the idea that the fundamental basis of reality is mental rather than physical. I checked this out in the form of a YouTube video, which lamentably has a lot more views than anything I've cooked up. In a modern context, we all acknowledge that the brain contains the neural correlates of consciousness. That is, functions in the brain directly correlate with operations or perceptions in the mind. The hard problem of consciousness is aimed at establishing the deep basis of that correlation. The easy part, by comparison, is to find the correlations, to figure out the rules of the game, as it were. The hard part is to understand the reality of the game itself. Starting from Descartes, we can recognize that the only thing we know for sure is our own existence, as conscious beings. We see and hear and think about things, and we assume those things to be possessed of real objective existence in a real objective physical world. I am sympathetic to the argument that if either my consciousness or the world is an illusion, it must be the world. After all, when I dream I exist and the people and places to which I am witness do not. Ultimately, this whole universe might be a dream I'm having right now. Of course, I'm still made to wonder what I am that dreams. Bernardo Castro begins by dismissing emergentism. He does not deny that properties emerge from simpler properties, but he claims that the emergent properties of matter can, at least in principle, be deduced from the simpler ones, mass and spin and charge. This implies that emergent properties are reducible to their simpler constituents, which obviates the claim that they are emergent. Emergence is generally definable as being more than the sum of the parts, thus irreducible. In any case, Castrop dismisses the possibility that consciousness emerges from complex integrated functions in the brain. He claims this is an appeal to magic. Let's not dwell on that. Let's see what the man has to say. Castrop notes that consciousness is a first-person phenomenon and that the brain is a second-person one. In other words, there is subjectivity and objectivity. He says that the brain is a physical system like the rest of the universe. That's true by definition. He then says that the most natural inference is this. The rest of the universe is also a second-person perspective of first-person experience. Wait, what? A duck is a physical system. It floats. A VCR is a physical system. Am I to infer that a VCR floats? Or that a duck has a rewind function? It's fair enough to compare the universe to the brain, which is what Castrop goes on to do, but inferring from one physical system that other physical systems share its features is a bit extreme. 
Furthermore, most of the brain, like most of the human body, does not correlate with consciousness. And that part of the brain, the thalamocortical system, which contains the neural correlates of consciousness, only does so when it's in a certain functional state. We have every reason to believe that the brain continues to exist during states of non-consciousness. But the opposite is not true. Consciousness does not continue to exist during such states. When I think of the universe, it doesn't seem to have much in common with the structure of interactions which occur in the conscious brain. Kastrup compares images of the universe to images of interconnected neurons in a way that I find totally unconvincing. He goes on to suggest that our view of the universe as objects moving about in space is too constrained, as if we were observing from inside of a synapse, with neurotransmitter molecules floating about. The implication is that we are seeing a very small piece of reality with our telescopes. That might be so. But what is the proof of that? And more to the point, how can we make claims about the arrangement of that universe beyond our horizon to complete the analogy to the synapse? Since things are moving about in synapses and things are moving about in visible space, there must be more space which is arranged like a network of neurons? Kastrup quotes the theoretical physicist Lee Smolin, who made the panpsychist observation that everything might have intrinsic subjective characteristics just as it has external measurable properties that we can describe scientifically. Then he references a short article in Nature by Richard Kahn Henry, a physicist at John Hopkins, which claims that quantum mechanics demonstrate that the conscious mind is implicated in the collapse of the wave function and therefore in the production of reality. Henry goes all the way to announcing that the universe is mental and spiritual, not material. He says that when pressed, physicists agree with this picture. I've yet to notice that. It looks to me like Henry holds a mental interpretation of phenomena. I'm open-minded, but I'm not ready to take that leap along with him. I have argued that consciousness should serve a function, that it should be able to make a difference in the world, which means it should be able to exhibit causality by some means. The collapse of the wave function in quantum mechanical terms might be a mechanism for that. I don't know. But that does not mean that it is like something to be the universe. Finally, Kastrup takes up the case of Dissociative Identity Disorder, DID, what used to be called Multiple Personality Disorder. Before going on, I'll share some research I did on the topic of DID. I found it rather difficult to find credible recent literature reviews. But I immediately noted, not surprisingly, that these papers tend to point to controversy in the diagnosis. The review I'll share from here is from 2008 by Simone Reinders, who distinguishes among iatrogenic, traumagenic, and pseudogenic explanations of DID. Reinders writes, quote, According to the DSM-IV, DID is characterized by, among others, a disruption in consciousness and the presence of two or more distinct identities or personality states, also referred to as different emotional states, alters, or dissociative identity states. Each of these states has its own perception of, relating to, and thinking about the environment and the self. Although these official criteria for DID do not specifically indicate a traumagenic origin, a history of childhood trauma is assumed to have caused the disorder. More specifically, traumagenic proponents hold that DID constitutes a severe form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Within the traumagenic position, DID is believed to originate from a subconscious self-protecting reaction in order to cope with chronic severe trauma, such as persistent abuse. According to this traumagenic model, a subject can dissociate, i.e. mentally compartmentalize, from their painful experiences by repressing, i.e. inducing amnesia, the memories of these experiences. 
Dissociation and repression keep trauma-related memories out of conscious awareness to avoid intolerable psychological distress. In this manner, different personality states are created. This theory is supported by numerous correlational studies. These studies usually rely on self-reports and confirm a high incidence of childhood trauma, e.g. childhood sexual abuse, physical neglect, and or emotional abuse in adults and children with high levels of dissociation or DID. These studies are supported by recent epidemiological studies which investigate the prevalence of DID and the relation to traumatic experiences in the general population. In support of the traumagenic position, these studies found that pathological dissociation is more prevalent in more traumatized subsamples." Unquote. I wonder to what degree these studies looked at the tendency to confabulate among traumatized versus untraumatized subjects. An increase in childhood trauma among those diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, especially established by self-report, is not evidence that the cases are traumagenic. Next, I'll share a piece on the iatrogenic case. Reinders writes, quote, the, the iatrogenic pr proponents assert that DID is manufactured during, possibly suggestive, psychotherapeutic treatment, often going hand-in-hand -hand with the creation of false memories and the creation of separate and distinct identities. The iatrogenic position does, does include a reference to memories of a traumatic past, but it states that these are manufactured during psychotherapy, while in contrast, the traumagenic view is based on the traumatic past being genuine. Indeed, from an iatrogenic view, the very existence of dissociative identity states is questioned. This often leads to a biased presentation of facts, research, and or literature. Representative of the iatrogenic position, including a literature review, are papers by Piper and Mursky, which were followed by consecutive responses from proponents of the traumagenic view. This shows that even after the official recognition in the DSM-IV, a consensus on the diagnosis and therapy of DID remains elusive, and supporters of the diametrically opposed iatrogenic and traumagenic positions still engage in passionate debate. Actually, within the iatrogenic view, two situations can be distinguished. One, subjects emulate DID on a subconscious level, or two, subjects emulate DID on a conscious level. In the first case, subjects are convinced, i.e. by the therapist, that they suffer from DID. Consequently, they believe that they consist of multiple personalities without having conscious control over their situation. Therapeutic dependency, high suggestibility, or high fantasy proneness may contribute to the effectiveness of the therapeutic intervention in the creation of DID phenomena. In this case, subjects genuinely believe that they suffer from DID. Therefore, this is a subconscious process as they are not aware of their simulation, and in that sense, the therapist bears full responsibility for the generated DID. In the second case, subjects actively simulate DID through conscious intervention to satisfy their therapist. Therefore, displaying DID symptoms is consciously chosen behavior, but without any ulterior motive other than to please the therapist. In a more general context, conscious DID simulation is referred to as malingering, and is therefore described in the pseudogenic section below. Conscious DID simulation is also increasingly included as a control situation in empirical DID research. One of the best-known DID cases, Sybil, has been found to have been a manufactured I iatrogenic case of multiple personality. Ryber, 1999, discovered how easily the fine line between self-deception and deception of others can be crossed when wanting to make a dissociative identity disorder case no matter what. Sybil was manufactured through hypnosis pentothal and a close emotional involvement between subject and therapist, using the subject's given capacity for suggestion, false memories of sexual abuse were created, and the notion of personality, uh, multiple personality implanted." Unquote. 
even if dissociation of identity can be implanted by suggestion, it's of interest to cognitive psychology. Also, if it can be accomplished that way, then it should be possible to come upon DID through other means, like trauma. I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't have a strong opinion of my own. This final brief section is on pseudogenic cases. Reinder writes, quote, Pseudogenic DID includes subjects who are simulating DID without any therapeutic intervention. This is a conscious and active simulation process for secondary gain. Several and diverse reasons can underlie this active malingering DID simulation. Needy and attention-seeking behavior, histrionic, is generally relatively harmless. However, other reasons can be less innocuous, obtaining financial, social welfare, or legal benefits. For example, by feigning DID, an accused can try to deceive a jury and judge in the hope to be held to not be held accountable or responsible for the crimes committed, thereby avoiding legal consequences, especially incarceration or execution." Unquote. Okay, so now that we're through with that aside, I can carry on with my analysis of Bernardo Castrop's idea. Castrop makes the case that like people with dissociative identity disorder, human conscious beings are dissociated identities from the universal consciousness. What we call life may be a dissociated process of mind at large. Castrop argues that consciousness is the ontological primitive, is sufficient to explain reality, and so there is no hard problem. The idea of human conscious beings as the dissociated local personalities of space-time is kind of fun. But beyond its creative novelty, I don't have much use for it. I don't think the argument hinges upon the reality of dissociative identity disorder, so my complaint is not based on skepticism of that diagnosis. It appears as more of an analogy which Castrop makes rather than a genuine case in point. Generally, panpsychists have to deal with the combination problem, the question of how little conscious entities join together to make complex, united conscious beings like ourselves. They avoid the hard problem of consciousness by holding that consciousness is simply a property of matter. Nobody worries about the hard problem of gravity. I've read some interesting approaches to the combination problem, including recently Hunt and Schooler's general resonance theory. Bernardo Castrop's small theory of everything argument circumnavigates the hard problem, but essentially only reverses it. We are left with an equal and opposite hard problem. The new hard problem is still concerned with the relationship between mind and brain, but rather than asking how brain function produces consciousness, it must ask how consciousness produces brain function. Now who's appealing to magic? Instead of seeking an explanation for the combination problem, he needs to explain the decomposition problem, if I may coin that term. How does the united universal mind produce smaller local ones? Castrop says that living people are second-person images of first-person minds, but he fails to explain how those second-person images, indeed all of reality, is manifested from the mind. I rather enjoyed taking a look at this video. I like outsider thinking. But this has been the most outsider theory that I think I've ever entertained on the podcast. Well, there's one exception. Daniel Dennett's illusionism. The absurd case that we are not conscious. We only think we are. But let's not get into that again. To the person who suggested Castrop's video to me, I appreciate it. I'm sorry that I wasn't as impressed by it as you were. It was a bit too speculative for my taste. And I suspect that his ideas are motivated by a spiritual worldview rather than unbiased reasoning. But it nevertheless gave me some new ideas to toy with. And after all, some of those might be right. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.